Well, thank you very much, Colin. Uh, we're, of course, uh, most privileged to be here at another Colin Steele event. Uh, Colin is to Australian authors as Adele is to wrongdoers in the finance sector, uh, bringing them more publicity than they could ever have imagined. Um, so thank you, Colin, for, uh, for organising uh, tonight's event. Uh, we're here to discuss Adele's terrific book, Banking Bad. Uh, you've seen the film, now here's the book. Uh, and I've got to say, they're both fabulous. Uh, there is, uh, it, it, you'd probably expect as much from someone who's collected eight Walkley Awards and received an AM this year, appropriately enough, for her services to journalism. But what's terrific about this book is it isn't just the story of the last couple of years. It's an account of Australia's finance sector and, and where things have gone off the rails. Uh, and it goes right back to, uh, to the 1980s, and Adele starts with Swiss currency loans. So, Adele, maybe we'll kick off there. Why is it that we had Australian farmers taking out loans in Swiss francs? Yeah, it was really amazing. So, the story is told through John Wacker Williams, who was a senator, but at the time, it was 1980. So, the early 80s, we deregulated the financial system, which was a really good thing to do. We got plugged into the global economy. But one of the problems was regulation wasn't really looked at. So the banks were deregulated and they felt that they had to start really competing because there were 16 foreign banks coming onto the soil. So they started to copy the sort of uh, products that they were selling. And there'd be people with sandwich boards walking up and down the streets, you know, promoting products. So it was a whole new world. John Williams lived on a farm. It was a fifth generation farm and there'd been a drought. So he goes to his local Commonwealth Bank in Inverell to get a $200,000 loan. At that time, interest rates were about 15%, and the bank manager said to him, there's this great loan, it's a Swiss foreign currency loan, and the interest rates are only 7%. And nothing can go wrong, have a look at all the charts. So he got shown everything and thought, why on earth would I take out a normal loan when I can get this? Two weeks later, the currency changed, and that loan was now one point... So, sorry, I go back a bit. He wanted $200,000. He got told, if you want this loan, the minimum you can get is 500000 And he got convinced to go for six forty. When the currency changed two weeks later, that loan was now $1.5 million. So it was terrible for him. You can imagine, you'd gone in for a $200,000 loan, come out with six hundred and forty. Two weeks later, you owe the bank 1.5 million. So he was battling, you know, he, what could he do? He couldn't pay the bills. He started uh, trading foreign currency, million dollars a day. This guy who'd left school in year 12, and he ended up losing everything. Fifth generation farm, lost his marriage, ended up in a $2,000 caravan, traveling the country selling nuts and bolts. So he was, and they were selling them to thousands and thousands of not just farmers, but other, other people who needed loans. It seems almost farcical that you'd expose people to this degree of exchange rate risk. I mean, we see exchange rates every day, you know, going, going up and down by figures that are well in excess of, of interest rates, and yet somehow institutions thought this was okay. Well, the problem was the bank manager didn't understand. I tracked down the bank manager and he was saying that he just got told to sell it. And they had targets that they had to meet. They had to sell a certain number of loans every month, otherwise head office would be beating them up. 
And they, he didn't know it was risky, so when Wacker Williams came in to say, do I need to hedge or whatever, he said, no, you're not allowed to. They didn't allow them to hedge No, the they had the wrong information. That's astonishing. Yeah. Wow. And you talk about some other changes that then began to take place in the 1990s. Um, the move of Bob Joss in to head up Westpac uh, at a salary which exceeded that of the other three yeah. bank CEOs combined. Um, the wave of branch closures that took place. And, and then the steady shift towards paying uh, f financial sector staff incentives based on their on the volume that they sold. Tell us how how some of those things changed the so, sector. So the whole thing is really changing now. There's you know the Commonwealth Bank is privatised. Everyone's really focusing on the share market. Compulsory superannuation has come in, and the banks are really worried that they need to get in on the act. And uh, you had in 1987 you had the stock market crash. And some of the banks got into big trouble because, as I was saying earlier, with deregulation, they're starting to just throw money at everyone. Bonds, Scase, whoever. And Westpac nearly came undone. And so in order to try and fix it, they bring in someone from America, Bob Joss. But he's on this huge pay packet with bonuses and is yeah, paid more than the other three CEOs. And that was really the, the start of these big pay packets. Everyone wanted one too. And Bob Joss brought in the whole cross-fertilisation and cross-subsidisation of products. So they all started moving into life insurance and financial planning, etc, etc. And, and that sort of products were based on conflicted remuneration. You talked too about the increase in uh, vertical integration, an yeah. example of uh, colonial first state being bought, bought by Commonwealth Bank. Well, what is vertical integration and, and why is it a problem? Okay, so you've got the bank and then you have a wealth division which is selling life insurance and other financial products, superannuation products, and they're crossing over. So you're getting bank tellers referring the, the customers to financial planners who are so flogging the bank's like products. It's a one-stop shop. You don't it need to sounds, go anywhere else for your business. Yeah, you're right. It sounds like a one-stop shop. It sounds perfect, but it wasn't. What's the problem? It was the incentives and the targets. So people had to sell certain products. So they'd say, you have to sell X amount of life insurance products today. You've got to, sell, you've got to increase people's credit card um, today. So they'd have targets every week, every day, on what to do. And so people were sold inappropriate products, uh, and, they, and they would, sorry, and they, they would get bonuses for it, or they they and if they didn't, then they would be punished. So financial advisors had league tables, going right round the country of the top planner who was a star, right down to the bottom who was reviled and basically beaten up. <laughs> And you get a sense, particularly talking to people in the finance sector union, that the job in this period is starting to change. It's much, it's moving away from uh, a job which looks more customer oriented and and seems to have sort of uh, an approach not that dissimilar from somebody working in the in the public sector to being some, a job which is much more like a marketing door to door sales kind of kind of job where you you live and die on your commissions. Yeah, that's right. Product like flogging. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's what they are. So staff would say, bank tellers would say, they, they started to see customers walking in as walking targets to sell products. You know, they'd have the machine in front of them and someone might be coming in to deposit money and they'd be looking, okay, 
little flag here, got to try and increase their credit card limit. Here, let's try and, and so it's, it's that sort of selling, selling, selling. Uh, and you've also, in, this, in the, the first uh, decade of the millennium, got the, uh, the big collapses, uh, Obus, Obus Prime, uh, Tri Tricom and, uh, and Storm. Give us a little picture of, of how some of those collapses unfolded. So you had the, the stock market was really racing up, you know, throughout 2000s. and 2008, you had the global financial crisis and that's where a lot of the bad stuff that was happening, you know, when the tide goes out, you can see, you know, who isn't wearing any, any clothes. And, and that's what happened with businesses like Opus Prime and Tricom and Storm, which were just highly leveraged. And, in, you know, in terms of Opus Prime, there was, you know, some criminal activity going on. And ANZ was, was behind Opus Prime and Tricom. It was securities lending. And with margin lending, it's usually you lend, margin lending is to blue chip stocks. This was to little tiny stocks. So you'd have this big leverage. And then when the stock market started to crumble, everyone's getting these margin calls. For anyone who hasn't, who's, hasn't spent the day uh, tra trading on their own portfolio, just give us a little window into, into exactly what, uh, what, what we're talking about here. Okay, well, I'll, I'll give you the example of Storm. That was really aimed, it was a product and it was mainly aimed at retirees. And what they do is you go in to see your financial advisor and he would say, here's a Storm product. What you do is you leverage your house and you also take out a margin loan, which is, it, it's a loan from the bank to invest in shares or Storm, which was also listed on the ASX. So that's what you do. So you're triple leveraging. You're, le you're leveraging your home by mortgaging it to actually buy more shares, and then you're taking out a margin loan to buy more shares. So if those shares fall, you're really exposed because you've got all these borrowings. So if the share market goes up, then you get the gains of not only the shares that you could afford, plus the shares you've borrowed against your house. That's um, right, and that's what happened. You know, so in 2006, seven. And, you know, for the first part of 2008, the market's going up. But the problem with products like Storm is people didn't understand the risk. So when it fell apart and they start getting margin calls, you know, so the bank is just calling it in saying, if you don't pay this money now, we're going to sell the shares outright. So you lose everything and you've still got all these debts. And that's what happened, and people just hadn't been explained that. So you had thousands and thousands of people, retirees, who lost everything, who were homeless, and they were just, you know, in a total state of anxiety. As you can imagine, can you imagine you've worked all your life, you own your own home, you're sort of convinced to buy this product that nothing can ever go wrong with it, and then suddenly you've got this massive debt and you don't have a place to live. You had uh, some particularly uh, troubling characters in this, uh, in this, in this stage. Uh, one who features in, uh, in Banking Bad is uh, Dodgy Don. Uh, oh, tell yeah. us about him. Okay, so Dodgy Don, Dodgy Don Nguyen was a financial... He was the star financial planner at CBA. So he worked in the Chatswood branch in Sydney for Combank. And he was doing a lot of this stuff. He was leveraging 
you know, retirees who'd, you know, been with the bank all their lives, come in to get some advice, go and see Don because he's the number one planner and you're very lucky to see him. And he invests the money and some of it is put into products they don't even know that they've invested in. You know, there are signatures on these products that people will swear that they didn't sign. They're out of the country, you know, and the, and the signature looks exactly the same like a cut and paste job. So they're going into all of these products and Don is, you know, making a fortune because the more products he sells, the more commissions he gets. So he's really riding high. The GFC happens. These, these really high-risk products, you know, cause financial devastation to so many people. And Don goes on suspension from the bank while they investigate and they realise they've got to start covering it up. And so they promote him, they bring him back and promote him, believe it or not. He gets a pay rise after all of this stuff that goes on and then he goes to Auckland to get his prize for being, you know, the number one planner. Meanwhile, Jeff Morris is the whistleblower who's sitting there in the Chatswood branch when he's on suspension, listening to all these people who are coming in, you know, crying their eyes out because they've lost everything. And he's going through the files and thinking, this is really dodgy. What's going on? So he then goes to the pub with a couple of mates who've got other stories to tell about other things that are going on. And they decide to go to the corporate regulator to blow the lid that there's just rampant misconduct going on. And more importantly, it's being covered up by the bank. So Adele, when you uh, speak to people in big banks about uh, the uh, response to, uh, to a lot of the allegations, they say, well, you've got to realise how huge our organisation is. The Commonwealth Bank employs 50,000 people. Um, we are invariably going to have some, some bad apples. Uh, if you start from the basis that one in five, one in ten Australians will get arrested at some point in their lifetime to have uh, uh, 50 people who behave badly in an organisation of 50,000, they say perhaps shouldn't be so surprising. How do you respond to the, the bad apples critique? Uh, it's really PR 101. That's the first thing. You know, you look at the Catholic Church wheels that out, it was just a few bad apples. It wasn't a few bad apples. And there were many, many, because it was part of the whole culture of just pushing products down people's throats. So it wasn't a few bad apples. It was everybody was doing it. You know, last year I got some documents that showed that even the Dolomites, which is, you know, the school kids' accounts, mm -hmm. bank tellers were actually fraudulently setting up school kids' accounts, thousands of them, to get the bonus. But it was also because they were getting pressured that they had to meet certain targets. So, it, you know, it, it's everywhere. It wasn't just a few bad apples. And you can see that from the Royal Commission. And so your point is it's about the systems in place and the managerial response yes. to, uh, to, to the scandals. That's exactly right, yeah. yeah. Uh, so then your uh, expose, uh, Banking, Banking Bad, the movie, comes out in 2014. Yeah. Um, were you surprised by the, the public response to that? Yeah, I was actually. It was, so the stories first came out in 2013 in the, news, in the City Morning Herald and The Age, and that was phenomenal. Uh, but there were hundreds and hundreds of emails that came through on the day. It was like every minute there was an email coming through from another person saying, me too, because the bank had been telling everyone, you're, you're the only one complaining. 
you're, you're, we'll give you a few thousand dollars, but you really are the only ones that are complaining here. So everyone thought it was just them that had you know, been put into these products, and silly them, they just didn't understand. When the stories came out, they realised that they weren't alone, so they started to unite. And so then there's a parliamentary inquiry called, which calls, you know, and then the, the banking bad Four Corners comes out, and all hell breaks loose. Because a few weeks later, you then have the parliamentary, uh, the Senate inquiry, which has a set of recommendations. And Mark Bishop, who was a Labor senator, had been appalled, so appalled that he said, I can't trust the regulator to do this. This requires a Royal Commission into the Commonwealth Bank and the corporate regulator. So it was really an extraordinary event. And you had the slight inconvenience for the coalition at this stage that they were going through a red tape repeal day process, which included repealing financial advice protections under the banner of future of financial advice. That's exactly right. On the very same day that um, this report comes out recommending a Royal Commission into Combank and saying that they should also look at Macquarie and a few others because they're really alarmed at just what they have found in this 12 months that it's not just a few bad apples. And yet, the, unfortunately, yet the coalition are trying to wind back the future of financial advice legislation, which was really extraordinary. And they were doing all sorts of things in order to dilute it. You speak about, in the, in the book, about the uh, Commonwealth Bank uh, life insurance uh, problems, and in particular, the incentives to uh, reduce the payout ratio, to increase the uh, uh, number of dollars that the Commonwealth Bank takes in relative to the, the amount they have to pay out. And you, you talk about one particular case that really choked you up, uh, the case of a a middle-aged man with motor neurone disease. Tell yeah. us about him. Yeah, so he, this was a, a, he was an accountant and he'd gone to the doctor because his arm was feeling stiff. And then there are all these letters that I'm reading where it's saying that he's, he, he's now having more trouble and he's diagnosed with motor neurone disease. And it's very rapid. And, you know, eventually, within months, he's in hospital. He, he, you know, he's, he can't feed himself, he can't walk, he's totally you know, almost a vegetable. His wife has put in the claim to the Commonwealth Bank and they're argy-barging about, because motor neuron disease can be rapid onset or it can be longer, and there's a lot of debate going on about whether this is rapid onset. Or, and this man is, he can't even eat, feed himself. And all he wants is to, is to get to one of the family members' wedding. It was just really heartbreaking that how they could be so brutal and callous, and it's all about profit before people. You know, and there were so many cases like that, and that story came out again thanks to a whistleblower who was the chief medical officer at Commonwealth Bank in the life insurance division, and I'd also separately got lots and lots of documents which showed that the bank was, you know, had medical definitions such as heart attacks, rheumatoid arthritis, strokes, breast cancer, etc. that were years out of date, and they weren't updating them in the policies because, you know, legitimate claims could be knocked back. It was as cynical as that. Adele, I'm curious as to how you went about your work in this period, because before there was a Royal Commission, you were almost the closest thing to a Royal Commission. Uh, just in a practical sense, how did you deal with the 
sheer volume of people emailing you and phoning you and sending you letters, how did you manage to process all that information and work out what you were going to run with, what you weren't going to run with, and, and treat people's heart-rending pain with the seriousness that it, that it deserves while filing regularly? Yeah, it, it's, it's really challenging and it continues to be challenging because even now I'm, <clears throat> I'm getting so many emails every day from people who are still talking about what's going on in the banking sector. And it is, it's really, you can't get to everybody. You know, I'll try and email everybody back and explain that, you know, I've got so many things going on. But yeah, it is. It's really challenging because there's so much out there. Do you do you know when you first look at an email whether or not it's something that contains a story that you think you might be able to ta take further? Sometimes. What is it about those stories? Usually, if they, it, often if it's somebody who's inside the organisation or or has been inside the organisation, that will really. Um, get my interest immediately. Mm. And for those who, who are victims of misconduct, how did you go about selecting the, the handful or so that you used for, particularly for the Four Corners episodes, for your front page stories? Okay, so what, what I'd like to do is, any stories that I'm doing, so whenever I have done a Four I've done a number of Four Corners or 7.30, whether it's tax, whether it's the banks, <laughs> whether it's retirement villages, or 7-Eleven, the thing that's in common with them is all of the people who've been done over by an organisation, I like them to be fighters. You know, people who, who really have fought and they don't care, they're willing to take it on. Because I think that people connect to that much better than someone who's just broken. Yes. Because there's a lot of, you know, these institutions break a lot of people and they can be helped through these other people who are fighters. So that's what I really look out for. And how's it changed how you view financial institutions? Do you find it hard to see the good in financial institutions and to identify the good, good people, having just seen so much of the, the underbelly? No, no, I still you know, talk to the CEOs and senior executives and no, I try not to be too... I think if you become too cynical, you, you lose your compass. You know, yeah. so it just becomes a bashing of an institution. You, you've got to keep some, some sense of balance. How do you maintain that in a personal sense uh, through, through this period? Oh, that's a really hard question. <laughs> it, can be, it can be challenging sometimes when you're seeing so much mm. unfairness. Did you, are there particular friends you, you draw on? Is there some way in which you step out of your work in order to, to maintain that? Yeah, well... I mean, I feel as though in order to do my job, you sort of, in some sense, need to be a congenital optimist, and in order to do your yeah. job, you need to be to have some, some sort of aspect of cynicism about you. Yeah, you uh, do, but you are... Neither, neither of those are, 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 are ideal if they're taken to extreme. That's right, and, you know, and so my optimism is if you keep exposing this then you will get change eventually. You know, it might not be the rapid change that you want, but, you know, it's just step by step and you can't give up. So then the Royal Commission that uh, you and others have called for happens. Uh, tell us about some of what you, th you saw as the uh, uh, most extraordinary moments of that Royal Commission. Oh, gosh, there was a lot. I, watching um, AMP, Jack Reagan, where he's... 
he's, they, they run out of, uh, they, they lose count of how many lies have been told. And you've got the uh, council assisting Michael Hodge saying, can I keep count for you? I think we're up to 14 now. And Jack Reagan is saying, yeah, I'll leave it to you. And he's saying, yes, I think it's 14, but we're still going. And this is about lying. So what AMP had done is it had charged fees for no service massively um, to many thousands of people. And it had been using the excuse to the regulator that it was an administrative error, you know, technology issues, when in fact it was deliberate. It was for profit. You've also got... Uh, your critical of, uh, of APRA, uh, which at one stage uh, allowed uh, organisations to edit its media releases. This is ASIC. ASIC. Oh, yeah. So ASIC throughout the whole time has been really a massive disappointment. So one of the, one of the shocking things, one of the many shocking things, I'll say, with, with ASIC was they were sending out draft press releases. So the regulator sends out a press release when an organisation or an individual has done something wrong. So they might say, this financial planner has been banned for this many years and this is why. Or this institution has, done, has breached these regulations and this is what we're doing about it. So that's the only time they generally put out a press release. What we were finding in the Royal Commission is they're sending out those draft press releases to the banks and getting feedback from them. So I'll give you an example. You had Cominsure, which was the, the life insurance division of Combank, and they're saying, should we give them a $250,000 community benefit payment or a $300,000? And then they're putting it to the bank. It's just incredible. So, so Commissioner Hayden is saying, this issue is relating to false and misleading, deceptive and misleading conduct in relation to advertising of products, you know, in terms of the um, definitions out of date, etc. It's $2 million a breach. So that's $8 million we're talking about. And here is ASIC discussing with CBA whether it should be a $300,000 community benefit donation. Sounds a lot different from an $8 million fine, doesn't it? So you know, even just fine compared to community benefit donation is is um, a lot of spin. So yeah, it was hot, it was shocking. There are also findings in way in which APRA had approached the superannuation sector. Tell us about some of those. Yeah, well, that, this was the other thing. So APRA is meant to be looking after the super sector, and it was just really missing in action. So there had been a Productivity Commission report that was released during the Royal Commission, which had shown that, you know, essentially APRA has been missing in action in terms of performance figures, the, the multiple accounts that people have, etc., etc. And Helen Rowell, who was the commissioner at, um, at APRA, was overseeing all of this. She came and gave testimony and was just saying that they basically haven't busted anybody over anything, again, another, you know, another regulator not doing its job. And take us through how each of the four big banks fared when they came before the Royal Commission. Okay, so Commonwealth Bank had Matt Common, and one of the highlights or lowlights was he was talking about a product called consumer um, credit insurance. And that's where you might take out a credit card and you, you buy insurance just in case you lose your job or you get sick. 
the credit card bills will be, will be covered by this insurance policy. And in the UK, it had caused massive problems. They, the, the banks have been flogging this product for years and they paid back billions and billions of pounds because it's a junk product. ASIC knew about it from 2012. Matt Common goes to see Ian Narev, who is then the CEO, and he says, I think we should stop selling this product. We're selling it to you know, tens of thousands of people and it's junk. It's just absolute junk. And, and Ian Narev says, temper your sense of justice. And he does. And, and he's questioned, did you take it to anybody else, in, you know, anyone on the board? And he said it wouldn't, it wouldn't have been any use. So he sat on it. They kept selling it in his division until 2018, the week before this product is to be discussed at the Royal Commission. Then they, they cancel it. And, and, and the whistleblower from Cominshaw, Dr Ben Coe, sent me a text as, as he was listening to it saying, Matt Common tempered his sense of justice and got promoted to CEO. I didn't temper my sense of justice and I got sacked. So that's CBA? That's CBA. ANZ? So ANZ came in and they, you know, Shane Elliott was sounding great at the beginning, but as soon as they started talking about remuneration and whether bonuses should be, you know, changed or whatever, he just fell apart, really, and didn't, didn't want to go there. None of them wanted to touch how they're paid. Westpac? Westpac. Brian Hartzer came in, it was very short, and he was extremely arrogant at the time. He was, he was grilled about various things, and he didn't want, he wanted to keep, he essentially wanted to keep the status quo. At the time he was, they were c continuing with vertical integration, they were gonna keep their wealth management division when he was grilled, whereas the other banks were flogging theirs off. And he was saying, this is still fine. And he, they were asking him about remunerating for fees for no service, and he was very cagey on that, about how they do it. And then a few weeks later, they announced that they were selling their wealth division. And finally, NAB. Well, NAB was a doozy, really. <laughs> As was Combank, you know, because I didn't go into the Catherine Livingston was also pretty amazing. But um, with NAB, you had Andrew Thorburn, who was the CEO, and he basically got absolutely ripped apart in that. He came in full of, you know, spin, talking about how he understands what's going on and saying it was like deep sea fishing. You know, when the boat goes out, you don't realise how far it's drifted. And that's what happened with banks and ethics. But as soon as they, he, they started to grill him, he was blaming everybody else but himself. And they said, you seem to be talking, you know, dumping in Andrew Hager on all of this. What about you? So he didn't come out well at all. And then Ken Henry was really terrible. He was so arrogant that social media went into, into meltdown with him. Do you think that reflected in institutional factors? Or is that more to do with those individuals? No, I think it was definitely, NAB had a cover, uh, had a, had, when the final report came out, Hayne made a very pertinent comment and he said that with the others, I think he went too soft on them. He, he gave them the benefit of the doubt. 
but he, and he picked on these two, saying that the public face of NAB is very different from what's going on privately. And he was absolutely right. <coughs> and that's what NAB has done for years. So it wasn't just these individuals. It's been going on for what, early 2000s with the foreign currency scandal. You know, that was something NAB went in and investigated it and said that they just had terrible risk controls and they had a culture of burying bad news. So bad news didn't get right up to the top because they didn't want to hear it. And so, you know, fast forward to 2018 with Andrew Thorburn and Ken Henry and you've got the same bad systems in place, bad risks, and they're just not admitting to it. And the reason I say that is because a whistleblower had come forward to me just after the Royal Commission had finished and was feeling very concerned that the Royal Commission hadn't looked at auditors who have the dual role of auditing and consulting. And in this case, it was Ernst & Young and National Australia Bank. So I got this trove of thousands and thousands of documents and it was just a train wreck. It was just all of these risk reports that were read breaches for many years. And you had internal interviews where Ernst & Young had interviewed the top 76 executives and directors. And included in that was Ken Henry. And he's interviewed, and I've got the minutes for this, and he's saying privately, because he doesn't think it's going to come out, um, I'm confident, and this is in July, when the Royal Commission is raging, I'm confident that we are selling products now that we'll have to remediate in the future. So why are you selling them? Why don't you stop selling them? So the report's handed down. Uh, you write that when you saw it, my heart sank. When the stock market saw it, uh, their stock prices rose. Uh, former big banks added $19 billion to their share prices on the release of the Royal Commission report. Um, what do you think drove those two responses? Because it didn't get to the heart of what was required. You know, and it's that word, vertical integration. There are still organisations that are vertically integrated Payne didn't go there. He just said, I'm leaving that for the market. So you still had AMP, IOOF, and at the time Westpac, and many others which are vertically integrating, and he didn't want to touch it. You know, so that was one thing that I found disappointing. The other thing was the regulators. Throughout the whole of the Royal Commission, he's banging on about how weak they are and ineffective. And instead of doing something more radical, he's giving them more powers and, you know, <coughs> suggesting more money because he thinks that they're going to, you know, come good. Rather than having a single financial services regulator. No? Yeah, something, something different, yeah. Because APRA, APRA has really dropped the ball on super. So I, I felt that because super is compulsory and it's a $2.8 trillion sector right now going gangbusters, you needed to have, it needed to be taken away from APRA, I felt. It just wasn't doing the job at all. Yeah, spent a bit of time in the parliamentary committee uh, in quizzing uh, APRA over superannuation last week and uh, couldn't help but come away with a pretty similar response. Yeah, it's, and, and the other thing was compensation. You know, at the end of the day, this all comes back to people, people who've been ripped off over the years. And the various scandals that I have uncovered over the years the banks will say mea culpa and they'll set up a compensation scheme and they lack transparency and they're all different from one another. 
I felt that he needed to really look at that and come up with some sort of a blueprint of how a compensation scheme should look. I also felt that, you know, people who fall through the cracks, who, you know, for years haven't been able to be compensated, he should have handled that. And that's where Labor came in. Um, ahead of the election, you guys announced a $640 million compensation fund. This was something that Hayne hadn't done, and he should have done something like that because, as I said, at the end of the day, there were thousands and thousands of submissions. Only 27 people got to speak, speak, get on the stand, which was really, yeah, I felt really disappointing. So let's close just with a few sort of personal recommendations that, that flow out of, uh, out of this book. Um, what does your book suggest about how we should manage our money and deal with institutions? How should a, a savvy consumer who wants to, uh, to, to uh, avoid the sort of pitfalls outlined in, in Banking Bad uh, handle their money and, and bank? Well, I think that you need to be more engaged. I think what's happened over the years is these institutions have preyed on the fact that people are, have a lot of apathy. We certainly have it in super. Many people, you know, there's been surveys done where people don't even open up their accounts to see, and it's been the same with financial planning. Fees have been gouged for years and people haven't noticed it. I think we really need to be on top of things. And the other thing is when things go wrong, really stand up and be counted. Don't let the banks say you're the only one that's complaining. And for the media and for politicians? Well, I think politicians need to, to react faster. They've been way too slow in all of this. You know, we're still... Hayne released 76 recommendations, and, you know, while I'm criticising it, I think it was fantastic that we did have a Royal Commission. We had 12 months where the spotlight was put on this sector, and it sort of vindicated what everyone had been saying for years, that it really needed to reform and repair itself. You know, so in that sense, it was great. It was just too short. That was the big problem. Yeah. Adele Ferguson, thank you very much. Thank you.